Welcome to Conversations with Dr. Jennifer, a collection of interviews on the topics of relationships, sexuality, spirituality, and more, all featuring Dr. Finlayson Fife. Hey everyone, just a quick reminder that our couples retreat is fast approaching. June 9th to 11th is my Strengthening Your Relationship Retreat, and June 13th to the 15th is my Enhancing Sexual Intimacy Retreat. We would love to see you at either one of these events, or you can purchase a ticket for the full week and attend both sessions. We're going to have an amazing time, and there's no better way to propel your personal and relationship development forward than to come to one of these live events. We hope to see you there. This is Sheree Phelps, and in this interview, I talk with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife about how to create more meaning, purpose, and happiness in your life through navigating that midlife crisis that seems to be unavoidable. Is the midlife crisis just some unfavorable thing that's going to happen to us regardless? Like, why do you think it is that it's so common for people in their 40s and their 50s to feel that? Mm-hmm. Kind of that emptiness, that lack of purpose. Like, I'm kind of curious yeah. if it's developmentally something's going on that just yeah. happens when you're, you know, at that stage in your life. Right. Yeah, there's good, que- those are all good questions. Um, I, I think, first of all, there's only a small percentage of people that actually have like the midlife crisis. I mean, there's some research that suggests like, you know, 10 to 20% of people have a full on, you know, the kind of stereotypical going and buying a Corvette, you know, yeah, <laughs> having an affair, that kind of thing where there, there's this deep anxiety about life. I, I think what's happening often is this fear of death a recognition of a loss of the youth, uh, their youth and possibility. And some people, you know, just to kind of address that stereotype, I think try to go back, uh, try to go back to that time, try to create something that was, and that seldom goes well because you can't go back. You have to go forward only. And so, you know, just some people are, living in the past, don't ever leave, keep over over parenting their children, you know, mm-hmm. over involved. That's one version of it. Having affairs, you know, starting to um in some ways not claim a wiser, older capacity, not growing into a deeper kind of wisdom. What I think's maybe more universal than that sort of overt crisis is loss. And a disruption, if you're paying attention, in a way of thinking that's been familiar, comforting, even right for you to bring you this far, that's starting to fall apart and no longer work. Ideals, goals, imagination about what life could be or should be starts to crumble. It's not panning out the way you thought. And those can be very painful and disillusioning experiences, um, and they need to be. I mean, I think the hard thing about life is that loss is a part of waking up to what the rules of life actually are, and it's often a kind of waking up that is hard. I wonder, I mean, because it also seems like um, there's this correlation between that midlife period and um, kind of the religious faith mm-hmm. transformation or a uh, crisis that people go through too. Like, I wonder if there's some sort of connection between the way that you start showing up in life in your 40s and 50s, where you start asking those questions. You have that kind of awakening too. Yes. That to me is developmentally right on time. So that is that 
I think that how, you know, in one of our earlier interviews, we talked about, you know, um, moral development and Mm -hmm. um, relational development. And, you know, when we're younger, not only do we gravitate towards a more black and white world and and a more rule framed world, we need to orient to the world that way. We need to orient to faith that way. It's really important for being able to be a wise person, to be able to create your life, to be able to form some identity, is to have that kind of structure. And so that is why faith, as simple-minded as it may seem sometimes, to people who are not faith uh, or not believers can be very, very valuable for giving you a purpose, giving you boundaries, uh, giving you a sense of who you are, and helping you to start to put together both a sense of self and a moral life. However, I think in our black and white thinking, in the level of development that we're in at that point, we can really imagine if I do all these things, my life is going, I'm going to have all these things, perfect relationship, good sex life, children who are all happy and thriving. Um, I don't know, financial success. You know, I'll never, I'll, I'll stay feeling youthful for, I won't, <laughs> I won't get older. I don't know. I think we have this, I think there's a kind of a denial of death in some ways. And when we're in those early stages of possibility, they're very, very important and we're really doing the right things. Uh, but I think that what happens is the limits of possibility start to emerge, what we actually have control over and what we don't that the rules have grown old and stale and are not working anymore, that they allowed us to achieve some things, but they were just the beginning stages of understanding how life works. And so there is often disillusionment at this developmental midpoint that hurts and that we're trying to make sense of either of ourselves and who we've been, of our relationships, of our purpose in life, of what meaning we give to our struggle, those are often up for renegotiation or reconstruction at a higher level. And that is very painful for most people that are going through it. And I think the the more how to say it, the more black and white and more um, in in some ways blindly hopeful you've been in that kind of first phase of moral development, perhaps the more that can hurt, the more it can feel like you've been tricked or that your life is not what you, life is not what you thought it was and so on. So um, as hard as it is and as sobering as it is, I think that's about people waking up at a higher level, and what you do at that point is very, very important. I think that's a good way to explain it, that it's almost like this midlife disillusionment that we kind of come into, and I think that can be very disorienting, and and I, I mean, it's, it's challenging, and yes. it's, I mean, maybe you're mourning some parts of your old beliefs, or, but I kind yeah. of want to talk about, like, when you enter into that, when you kind of come into that part of your life, I think it can be easy to get stuck there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of want to talk about ways that you can approach that midlife crisis or slump or whatever we want yeah. to call it, the midlife disillusionment in ways that uh, you can grow from it. I've heard you talk about this in a couple different settings where you try to live life as like in the moment as though this is kind of your last opportunity mm-hmm. to experience. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit more of maybe mm-hmm. how you came across that idea and how it's maybe impacted and influenced your, your mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Well, I think in some ways I've always on some level been blessed with the gift of gratitude. Mm-hmm. I remember a seminary teacher saying something like, you guys, 
don't even understand how fortunate your lives are or like how precious this time is. And I remember thinking, I don't think that's true for me. <laughs> I, I just remember thinking, cause I used to, I used to think that way a lot. Like there are no guarantees yeah, and life could be taken from me at any moment and to live it as fully as I can now just felt important to me. I don't know why exactly. I can't really say why that mm -hmm. felt clear to me. I, I don't mean to say that that was the same meaning then as it is now, because now it feels even more true because, yeah. you know, my husband and I are in our fifties and sixties. I rec, you know, we're in a kind of a a good time in life because the kids are gone. I mean, that's <laughs> I won't have the kids listen to this podcast. <laughs> but, you know, we've kind of done the bulk of our work there in a sense. And, uh, and, yeah. um, and so there's a lot to value and appreciate and knowing that there's a finiteness to it. So I don't know if I'm answering your question very well, but I think it's more like while I have deep, faith and hope in the next life, I have no idea what that's going to mean, what that would be like. All I know is that there's loss, pending loss in the present. And that the only antidote to that for me is to appreciate and value the, the now, the miraculousness of it. Um, I think, you know, a a way of thinking that's sort of driven this home is a kind of popularized stoicism at this point in our uh, cultural awareness. There's a lot more of of people kind of returning to some of those ancient approaches. And one of the ideas is this embracing of the of the present by being very aware of future loss that someday you won't be able to you know, sometimes if I'm exercising and I'm hating it to sort of know, like, yeah. well, someday I may not be able to do this. And so right now I can and value that. It's just, it's a way of, I think sometimes we can use the idea of eternity to diffuse everything into almost becoming meaningless. Yeah. And so, again, containers can help us value and can help us invest our energy. So it's a way of not denying a hope for eternity, but a way of placing a container on the present. I think in some regards, if we're not careful, we can use our faith and hope in the next life to put off doing good in this life. I was talking with a friend and she was sharing her thoughts about her uncertainty of, of a life after this one and how it's increased her desire to do good in this life and to really make it an effort to create a positive impact with her life now. I think that, right, I mean, I think one of the wonderful things about belief in an, in the next life is just the management of pain around loss. I mean, it's, it's just remarkable how, you know, after experiencing my dad dying, I mean, just how permanent it felt. I mean, just how shocking it is to one's system death. And that is just so painful and such a hard part of the human experience that faith in the hereafter has that softening effect of that I will be able to still have these important relationships. However, I think, I think we can sort of when we say that something will, we will always have it, that, you know, we'll never be without, it's a way of, it allows us to not appreciate and value its presence. It kind of diffuses it, you know, it doesn't create, the finiteness can actually facilitate valuing. And so, you know, in my comment that, you know, the idea of that I have faith in that and hope for that. But the reality is that loss is always a part of our lives. And if we don't really understand that, we can stay asleep. Um, 
to how much beauty and meaning and richness we aren't seeing because we're taking all these moments for granted. So, for example, you know, I will never be the mother of a two-year-old again. I will never, you know, those are these moments that were so precious, but for my children to grow up, which of course I want, and I want to to facilitate them moving to the next level, but there's also loss. You lose those moments of relating to them uh, in a younger way. And so I remember reading a book when I was about 20 called Necessary Losses by Judith Fjorst, and she was really just talking about how much loss is a part of loving and valuing and living well. And so if we're trying to deny loss, um, then I think it it's a, it's a human tendency, but in some ways it then allows us to stay asleep or devalue the finiteness that increases our focus if we let it. And with that, I mean, when you take in that idea of mortality, I think maybe, and you kind of mentioned this in the beginning, kind of awakening up to the realization that um, we're not invincible and and trying to metabolize the reality of morality and that there's going to be an end. When, um, I think that can feel heavy to some people. And how yes. do you get to a place where I mean, you can accept the truth of mortality without it looking bleak and depressing, but maybe use that in the way that you're kind of explaining to help you be in the moment. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think from a spiritual or moral perspective, this is not easy. And it's why it's a virtue, because there is so much loss and cruelty in the world. Life is very hard. And people who've suffered the most know this best and know how hard it is to stay hopeful um, because there's a lot of reasons to, to justify cynicism and to justify giving up and to be hateful in return because it hurts, because people can hurt each other, um, because life is short and uncertain. And so I think that's a tempting pull. The problem is if you cave into it, even as justified as it may be, life gets harder. My son was writing an essay last year that I was uh, helping him edit about, or reading anyway, on some apocalyptic story. Mm-hmm. You know, always my favorites <laughs> stories. <laughs> but anyway, but the the basic storyline, I don't even know what the title of the book was, but this basic storyline was this husband and wife and child were in this post-apocalyptic world. It was desperate and terrible. And the mother just, you know, everything they would try that it would fail, that just to survive was looking less and less and less likely. And the mother just couldn't keep hoping. She couldn't keep doing to herself to keep hoping and having it fail. And so she gave up. And I can't remember what happened to her, but she gave up. And the father, because of his love for the son, just against all hopes, kept trying. And the the meaning I took, at least from my son's write-up of it, was that um, this hope is like the the only antidote to all of the suffering and actually makes a difference because it was the son ended up surviving the father didn't and you know that the that the there is this way in which it's it's very connected to love it's very connected to courage and it's the only thing that we may have sometimes to help us mitigate here and now suffering is to care enough to put one more step in front of the other. And so that's why I think hope is a virtue, is it's still believing in the good. It's not going into despair and letting despair consume you, which is not me saying that there's not room for grief and acknowledgement of loss 
and acknowledgement of the difficulty of it. That's all important. Learning from it, all that is important. But it's about not letting it consume you. And I think that's at the core of faith. You know, I remember like listening to children's stories and they'd say at the end, believe, you know, like just believe. I'm like, what are they talking? In what? You know, Santa Claus? I mean, what are they? <laughs> that's not necessarily virtuous to just believe anything, right? It really yeah. isn't. Yeah. But is there a hope that allows you to keep trying and mitigating mm-hmm. suffering within you and in others, even in the face of so much despair, loss, or cruelty? Yeah. I think another challenging aspect that happens in you know the midlife is it is as you start to look at life and you're seeing the past and and the finite future. I think regret starts to set in because you start to realize maybe some of the choices you made were you would have done differently. Yes. And you start to feel maybe even the impact of um, the limitations that comes from it or, I mean, not necessarily terrible choices, but maybe. Yeah. But even just limited as a parent, not knowing things, not, not seeing certain things in a particular way or yeah, I think a parenting from the level that you were at, that's all we get. Or making choices from the level of understand any choices, where right. to live, what career, how to, you know, relate to faith, to yourself, to others. I mean, those are all going to be choices that have long-term implications. And that in some respects, we don't have any choice except to do them at the level of understanding we were in. Yeah. And it's very easy to do to ourselves to, to take the understanding we have at present because we've weathered something, we've learned from something, and berate ourselves for not having understood it earlier. And I just think that's dishonest and not fair. I mean, I understand why we do it, because we want to imagine a world where we can go backwards maybe and do it differently and everything works out great. Mm-hmm. But we don't, first of all, live in that world. And you know, I'm not sure. I mean, some regrets I think are, um, this is just a sidebar and we can go to this if it's helpful, but some regrets are on point. You do really see, if I had thought differently about this, it would have gone better. If I had been wiser, I would have spared myself or someone else this pain. So that's one category. And then we have false ideas about if we'd done something differently, it would all be so much better. If we lived in a different town, we'd married a different person, we'd, you know, that everything would just be, we'd be having that dream life we had once imagined. And that's deeply suspect uh, for me. I mean, that is to say a lot of times we want this fantasy that the old dream really was going to happen if we just made a different choice. Mm -hmm. But those two distinctions aside, the idea that we should have, it's just an easy way to kind of manage the loss in the fantasy that we could have done differently. And I think really our agency is so limited by the context in which we are functioning, that our current beliefs, our current self-understanding, our understanding of, of what the variables in fact are. And we're often in a very limited perspective trying to assert what we think will work out, the learning that you get from that failing is the, is kind of all we get, you know? I mean, yeah, you just, yeah. and, and so that, again, I think going back to your last question, like, I think just metabolizing that is part of what it is to live in a hopeful or faithful way is to tolerate the terms of being alive, which is to handle how imperfect it is, to handle how limited our knowledge is. Um, We can even be really wise to get the best input to make the best choices we possibly can, but still be choosing from a very limited perspective nonetheless because we don't have any other option. And that's just an important thing to accept in life to help us suffer less. I think it can be challenging to find like once once you hit like a period in your life, it feels like you just start to get into this this rhythm and it can start to get mundane mm-hmm. and predictable and 
and familiar. And I think it can be challenging. I mean, whether that's with your career or your home life, it can be challenging to, I don't know, maybe find excitement in life when it's so routine and so maybe even feels monotonous after a while. How do you confront the the mundane and the routine in a way where you can still find purpose in it or yeah, life in it, mm-hmm. fulfillment or satisfaction? Yeah. Well, I mean, just to kind of speak again to the kind of developmental piece of what you're saying, I, I think that when we're choosing a career, you know, if that's applicable, getting married, having children, if that's applicable, you know, that there, those are hope infused times. Those are all about building the future. If you're buying a house, you're, you know, it's all about creation of a possibility. So it's inherently hope filled because, you know, it's all an expression of investment in a future, a happy future. So it's often easier in some respects. I mean, some people may feel lots of anxiety during those uncertain periods, right? Because that uncertainty can feel overwhelming. But yeah. it's, a, it's a time that's inherently future-focused, and the behaviors themselves are an expression of hope. When we get situated in our lives, the marriage goes from you know exciting and new to just more routine or more stable but Mm -hmm. less alive. You know, if kids are kind of moving out of their young, I I think as kids move into adolescence and start leaving home, I think a lot of people go into a slump in that period because there's loss that's happening. Even if they're excited that the kids are moving on or even if they feel they've done a good job or that the kids are even doing exactly what they would hope, there's still loss and... Um, moving out of that frame of possibility and moving more towards accepting what is or what has been. And so I think there's invariably loss in that, even if we couldn't have done it better, which I think is very few of us. But you know, let's say we just think there's just no critique I have of myself whatsoever, okay? <laughs> if anyone out there yeah, yeah, it's exists, they still have to deal with the loss, like the yeah. loss of possibility, the loss of a period of time, the loss of an identity connected to a, a period of time in your life. And I think what it is often is recreating what do I care about now? What do I do now in my life? And, you know, my mom, my dad died a couple of years ago. My mom is about to turn 90. And for her, the first year was just, I mean, primarily about grieving. It was about the loss and the aloneness. And then I would say just observing her in this second year has been, you know, I remember my dad's memorial the day had been a year. And I remember her, her, we had a little service and her crying um, in a kind of a way of like, like it felt transitional to me. Yeah. And um and then you know in that next year my mom started reorganizing the house, redecorating parts of it. She went into a dance studio when she was next to the UPS store, just walked in and signed up for <laughs> dance classes. It's <laughs> <That's> awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. It's awesome. I actually have this video of her from just the other day and it's, she's like so full oh of gosh. life. I love that. She's so full of life. She's there dancing, she's beautiful. She's you know, dancing with this guy that's half her age or younger, probably. And uh, <laughs> and it's just a, this like she's literally like looking for what to where to invest and find life, find aliveness, find pleasure, find hope, find a purpose. Yeah. I mean, she says she, in her mind, she talks to my dad every day. I mean, I know she's looking to a period when she will see him again and be with him again. But in the meantime, it's not just loss. It's about how do I live life? I mean, I probably learned this from my mom, actually. I mean, how do I live life now? How do I 
I mean, my mom talks as if she's going to be here another 30 years. Like the way she talks is like, you know, I want to do this and I want to learn that. And, yeah, you know, and so it's, it's re, it, it may mean reworking that purpose, reworking that identity, <clears throat> I think is a really important piece in it. But finding it nonetheless. And the thing is, if you do that, the thing is, as we move into the later stages of our life, after we move out of that sort of building and um, investing period into what sometimes is the post-midlife crisis or this loss, this loss um, that we may experience, you have so much wisdom and so much to offer the world and the younger generations if you can metabolize the loss, tolerate the terms of life, and find meaningful ways to make a difference from that position. And there are so many ways to do it. Yeah. I mean, the way that you're talking about this midlife period, I think it sounds, I mean, I think there is something that's going on that causes us to want to create more meaning, more purpose, more, find more satisfaction in our life. And I think I mean, thinking about it the way you're talking about it and and the way that your mom's approaching life, it can be a very empowering part of life yeah. to allow that that pressure to try to find more purpose out of life. I mean, yes. So human beings, we want to feel efficacious, that sense that what we do matters, that what we do has impact. I remember hearing research when I was an undergrad that even in nursing homes, that if the residents that they gave a plant to and said, it's your job to take care of this plant, they lived longer than the ones who had no purpose, but just to wait and hope somebody would visit them. And so that sense that we are doing something, that we are needed in some way, that we have an impact, first of all, it's always true, whether or not we acknowledge it. It's like when you know, when you're, when my mom is invested in her life and is hopeful and like it affects everyone around her, right? Not just her. And so that willingness to hope enough to reinvest, you still are dealing with much loss, a time when things were easier, a time when things were more certain perhaps, but still moving forward to embrace this life, it's morally good, not just for your own sense of, of happiness, but because it's a way of sharing that good with others. It's a way of impacting others. And so finding a way to reinvest our care, to care about life enough, to try, to tolerate the uncertainty of it. I mean, I think as human beings, we love certainty so much. And that's why, you know, that those earlier stages of life, you know, the black and white thinking, you do this, that you'll get this consequence, you have that, you know, you're, you're, that's something that we love and we definitely need when we're younger. But oftentimes what these crises do or these losses do is they, excuse me, they pull the rug out from under our sense of certainty and predictability. And some of us can sort of double down on the black and white and live somewhat demandingly or as a victim or, you know, sort of insisting that that rigid world is true and, and everyone should conform to it. Or you can move towards the uncertainty and allow it staying faithful in the face of uncertainty. By faithful, I mean faithfully engaging in life, caring about it, trying to do what is good, finding the good in the face of loss or evil. And that um, is a way to find a deeper anchor, a deeper solace, and to live life more on life's terms. It allows you to be a wise source for those around you and those younger than you. It seems like then the ability to kind of have a healthy relationship with our desires yes. can help aid us in finding satisfaction and fulfillment and excitement in life. Yes. And a, yes, exactly. A healthy relationship 
with ourselves, which absolutely is connected to our desires. So, you know, I think sometimes I talk about this in, you know, my women's course, a lot of times the way women have learned to be a self or to be good is to sacrifice themselves without having had a self yet to sacrifice. <laughs> yeah. Think that yeah. You're not even supposed to want things. You're supposed to be there to support the wants of others. And that's such a, that, that's a way of trying to have a self by others telling you you're legitimate by giving up who you are and just being a support for them. But it doesn't end up working. In order for us to be alive, you know, we have to have a health, we have to have a healthy relationship to who we are, to our own minds, to our own desires. It doesn't mean you do everything that you desire necessarily, but you need to know what gives you life, what creates that spark in you, what it is to live your truer self, to live from your truer self. And that takes some courage too, because it's if we're only looking for reinforcement, that who we are is what everyone wants us to be, right? We'll ne we're never going to find that sort of honest relationship with who we are. And you have to be willing to take the risk of doing it. I remember my mom, because my husband and I are living with my mom right now, I remember her coming back and she said, uh, from the UPS store, <laughs> and she said, you'll never, I mean, I think she was a bewildered that she'd even done it. She's like, you'll just never believe what I just did. And she said, I just saw, and I just walked in and it's like her, it's a spark went off inside her. Like she wanted to do it. It's something she'd always wanted to do. And without giving herself too much time to think, she just signed up for the classes. And, and, um, and so my, I guess what I'm trying to say is like that takes a willingness to honor what allows you to light up, to make room for your own development, your own joy, your own sense of embracing and savoring the opportunity to be alive. There's kind of this idea, at least that I somehow inherited growing up, um, I don't know if, whether it's religiously or family or culturally related, but there's kind of this idea um, that there's this this personal mission out there for mm. individually for each person that we're supposed yeah. to fulfill. And almost like we need to go figure out what that yeah. personal mission is, try to decipher what it is. And I think that can be... That's a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, massively stressful trying to figure out like mm -hmm. just this anxiety of like, am I making this right choice? And is that going to open up this? Like you're yeah. trying to like guess how you're supposed to live so that a certain, all the certain things unfold the way that they're supposed yeah. to unfold. I think that's just an absolutely terrible idea. I, I might even say it's close to evil because it, it, it damns people. It doesn't help people move forward. So while I believe in a personal God, um, and, and I imagine there are some people who have a very clear, predetermined mission. Mm -hmm. I think that is not most of us, if it's any of us. I mean, it's, it's, I think that because what ends up happening is you spend your whole life in validation seeking. A lot of times people talk about wanting to do God's will, but they're doing it in that validation seeking frame. That is the idea that there's this thing God wants me to do. It's already predetermined. And I have to, with very limited information and signals, yeah. have to spend all my energy trying to figure out, is it this? Is that a sign? Is that a cue? Right. Am I supposed to, was that feeling, meaning? I, anyway, I feel like that's putting it all external. And, hmm. you know, it's one thing if God were just showing up in our bedroom and saying, look, I want you to sign for this class and make sure you get an A in this one. <laughs> <You know? laughs> okay, fine. You know? <laughs> but, uh, but I don't think that's how life works. And so when we're putting all our energy and trying to decode the impossible to decode, yeah. we are expending it externally as opposed to developing a deeper self-knowledge, that we can find God within ourselves. We can find the good within our choices. 
part of my um, training is was to give people assessments to help them know what career focus would best fit their personality. And this has value. That is to say, if you're a more social person, well, then it's going to point you towards careers that would expect more social ability. Or if you're a very uh, realistic person, this is kind of the way, you know, very here and now, you're going to be happier doing more practical jobs. So that's valuable. But it isn't just about goodness of fit. It's about people that found a problem that mattered to them and worked to solve it, worked to make a difference relative to that problem. And so if that meant they needed to then go get this degree or get trained in this way or get more involved in something or volunteer, that was what was very related to happiness, going back to that sense of efficacy, that what I do has an impact on someone, on something that matters out there. You know, even in the Ukraine crisis right now, um, that that you see so many good people that are they just have to do something. They have to do something to make a difference. There are all these volunteers at the borders, at the border crossings, just offering people blankets, comfort, food, you know, direction because they need and want to be there to make a difference given what so many good people are suffering. And that is what creates meaning and where we experience God and aliveness is in that kind of meaningful impact on each other. So if we are out thinking there's something that God wants me to do, and if I don't figure it out, I'm going to fail, Yeah, that puts all our focus in the wrong place rather than to be awake and involved and engaged in the world, anxiously engaged in a good cause. That's it right there. How do I make a meaningful difference here? And if it creates a spark in me, if it creates a sense of meaning in me, it's good. God is in that. And go forward. And, you know, as you go forward, you may then see different problems or different ways you can make an impact or have developed capacity that now informs how you may take a slight left turn and go in a slightly different direction. But that's all a part of that progression. And I just remember somebody after a Art of Desire workshop saying to me that she was trained in a certain area, I can't remember what it was, but she really wanted to work in a certain, um, in this profession in a particular job. And she was saying, I'm waiting for, you know, the Lord to, I'm waiting for that opportunity to present itself to me, right? Yeah. And I just said, you know, I, th- I think you're going to wait a long time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I said, I, that's just not how I think about it. I think she was comparing the way she thinks to some of the ideas I was saying yeah. in the class. And I just said, I, I don't think that's how it works. I think if you want that, you need to go and pursue it. And if it's wrong, you'll feel it to be wrong. And if it's not where you really w- are going to thrive, well, then you'll know that better at that point. But, you know, I, I've never had the experience that things, how to say it, I, I think if I look back on my life, I do see these moments of some miraculousness of like, wow, that's a, so fortuitous. Um, but I didn't do that looking forward. I wasn't looking for signs or signals. I was just moving forward around the things that felt impactful or meaningful to me. Um, and so I think God is there with us often, but I think it's easier to see looking back than looking forward. And I think that's how it should be. Yeah. Yeah. And that feels like a much more adaptable, flexible way to approach life because, I mean, it, if you're operating under that framework of like, how can I, within these circumstances, within what's going on currently right now, create the most good in my life, then, I mean, it doesn't matter. Like, Yes, exactly. It doesn't matter. What- yes. It's a life well spent. It's exactly right. If you're looking for a way to make a difference, and that's honestly the desire of your heart, well, you'll find there may be a thousand ways to do it, but your life will be richer for it. Yeah. I think, and maybe it's the Ukraine. I've been thinking a lot about um, individuals like Irene Sendler and Janusz Korczak and Viktor Frankl and Corey Ten Boone, you know, these individuals mm-hmm. who, yes. who lived through World War II 
through horrific conditions. Yes. Yeah. Horrific conditions and individuals who I admire a lot because I, I see them in their life and their circumstances trying to create the most good under right. the harshest conditions. I would imagine that they felt, you know, some sort of satisfaction and fulfillment and purpose. Yes. Even in those harsh conditions, which kind of leads me to believe like, Finding happiness in life, finding that fulfillment, satisfaction that I think we want to create and experience comes more from living a good life, yes. more so than having yeah, a good 100%, life. Thousand percent. It's true. I mean, I just heard this recently and I can't remember where I heard it, but somebody was talking about, you know, research on the people who would, um, you know, during occupied Nazi Germany that would like take in, uh, I mean, when they would, they would take in Jewish friends and neighbors and protect them and take their own risk, their own lives to do it. And some were religious, some were not, um, you know, there was a real spectrum in belief, economic position, but the consistent variable was that to do otherwise betrayed their sense of the kind of person that they were. And so it ultimately was like living up to their own sense of who they needed and wanted to be on this planet for them to be at peace with themselves. And so it's, it's that that's where I think the richest satisfaction comes is to not self betray the best in ourselves, our truest selves, our most, moral selves, you know, I think that to go against that will undermine our peace. Um, even though it may cost us validation, may humble us, may expose our limitations. And so that living in this way, well, those are the, those are the most joyful people. But it's not a kind of happiness like we sometimes think. You do all these things and everything works out and life's just one big party. You know, it's, yeah. not, it's not that. It's a kind of a capacity to know beauty. It's a capacity to see the good in the face of loss and adversity and challenge. It's to recognize where the good is in the face of all that. That's what I think is a valuable belief in God. So, you know, this betraying our sense of who we are. And I think, you know, I'm sure Viktor Frankl found some satisfaction or Corey Tenboom in doing these things. But I think more it's about living up to your own expectations of yourself needing to do the good as a kind of internal salvation not for the next life but like for the now yeah because that's where the beauty and the peace lies in the face of so much loss and grief the you know i remember sometimes in some of my training hearing some of the darkest stories, like the most horrific things that happen to people. And I remember just feeling this intense pressure within myself, like I must do good in the world. I must be good. Not to please God, right? I mean, I, yes, but no. I mean, not not like thinking, uh, you know, I need God to be happy with me, that I need to push to, to a, how to say it, to confront darkness with doing what is good. And that's a deep belief that's a meaningful belief in God for me, that you believe in the reality of good enough to align yourself with it, to do it even when it's uncomfortable or personally costly to you, that you know that salvation is in it for the here and now even, not for the next life. Yeah. That's where you find the beauty and the meaning in the face of so much dark. And we need that beauty. We desperately need it. And I think as we refine ourselves 
and align ourselves with what's true, we become more capable of seeing beauty, like savoring the here and now, the preciousness of the people, of, the, of our f- true friends, of the people that really care about us, like to really value and be grateful for them. That's a part of seeing beauty. Um, and that's a part of knowing God. You know, I, I actually uh, have a, someone that lived with our family for a year who's Ukrainian, and she was in Kharkiv uh, when the first, you know, when the Russians first invaded and endured several days of intense bombing. And, and <laughs> it's just hard to tell the story because it's hard. But she managed to get out. Um, she managed to get with her mom uh, to Western Ukraine, uh, where she has been waiting, and then bombing started there uh, last week. And so they have um, just they just crossed the border recently, just a couple days ago, and we we're very relieved to have them finally cross. But she was uh, texting me as um, they went across, and she said, "You know, it's been the hardest." month, as you can imagine, of her entire life, both both for like the loss of their actual home, the loss of security, enduring physical real risks to themselves, but also I think a loss of a sense of God that she has known or, or believed because to confront so much evil is to really challenge an idea of a God that protects you. Um, if that's the operating idea. And, um, but she said to me, like, as she crossed the border, that there were so many good people that were there that she said, you know, I could see God in this moment. I could see God in all of these people, in them caring for us, in them wanting to help, wanting to make a difference. And so what she was saying is I could see the beauty in that, that there is good in the world still. And um, so it, it isn't maybe the world we wanted when we were younger. It's not as safe and it's not as predictable. But good is real. Goodness is real. Love is real. Striving to live honestly to live our best selves is the only antidote we have and it's a very powerful and meaningful one and that's what it is is to keep remembering that in the face of a lot of pull to give up to be cynical to not try and midlife presents that to us most of us i don't know anyone yet who hasn't suffered losses of hope and expectation at this point in life. Jennifer, I think that's a I think that's a beautiful place to stop. Thank you. Thank you for your thoughts. You're so I welcome. Think. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and share the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from Jennifer's work.